Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. For much of the 20th century, Chicago was a factory town. Schwinn bikes, Zenith TVs and radios, Ludwig drums, Lincoln logs, candy corn, those products and many more were made right here in Chicago. But by the 1970s, the factories were closing, the jobs were disappearing, and the communities they sustained have never been the same. WBEZ's Race, Class, and Communities Desk came out with a three-part series on manufacturing in Chicago this week on the air and online. It digs into the history of the industry in the city, efforts over the years to help it, and some challenges manufacturing faces today. Today, we're checking in with the reporters behind that series, starting with Odette Youssef. Odette, take us back to the 1950s and give us a snapshot of manufacturing in Chicago. It was a vibrant industry, Jen. Let's start with the south side of Chicago, because um, in some communities there, manufacturing actually employed more than half of the working residents um, in communities like Hegwish and East Chicago. There, you had the presence of the steel industry. And In the end, I decided actually to shift my focus to the west side because I feel like the loss of the steel industry has been very well documented. The west side, when we're looking at what used to be in sort of the Garfield-Austin area of the city or extending a little bit further northwest into areas like Hermosa, Belmont-Cragen, You had this incredibly rich and diverse sector. Like you mentioned, there was everything from jukeboxes. Chicago was once the pinball manufacturing capital of the United States. Mm. Who knew? Lincoln Logs, one of my favorite toys, which like one of the fun things about going down this rabbit hole was sort of finding out the hidden history of a lot of these products. Frank Lloyd Wright's son was the inventor of Lincoln Logs. I didn't didn't even know that. And then also I have a weakness for candy, and so that was a big draw for me to look at the West Side, too, because you have these enormous areas of empty land now. The Brock's site where Brock's candy corn was made, um, Milk Made Caramels, um, all of these sort of iconic American candies, that's now a 30-acre site that's being uh, used to stage uh, semis and uh, trucks. Um, They just go in and out of that. Um, has nothing to do with any manufacturing activity. And it's not a big employer anymore for people living in that area. So it was a really interesting history to look back at. Well, you spoke with a woman from the West Side named Jacqueline Reed. And here she is talking about what the Austin neighborhood was like back in its manufacturing heyday. In the 60s, you had real stability on these blocks. You had the Light Halls, you had the McGeary's, you had the, you know, different Smiths, the Williams, the Johnsons, you know, and the Dixons. All of these were stable families on these blocks. Unfortunately, I think that the sense of community does not prevail now. I think that you have a lot more hopelessness. Talk about what you learned about the way these manufacturing jobs, you know, it wasn't just about a job. It was also helping to sustain neighborhoods. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to that site that I mentioned, this 30-acre site that Brock's Candy used to be located at. If you go to that location on Cicero Avenue and you look right across the street, busy Cicero Avenue, you'll see 
residential neighborhoods. You'll see um, blocks of houses. These blocks used to be occupied by people who either worked in factories such as Brock's that were nearby or had family members that did. And they are now some of the most distressed residential neighborhoods on the West Side. And that sort of encapsulates what has happened. You can't say that it's only because of the departure of manufacturing. Obviously, the Great Recession took a toll as well on housing there, but that's part of it. But yeah, what Jacqueline Reed told me was echoed by other people that I interviewed for this story. There used to be a time that these jobs, they weren't just jobs, but they were sustaining jobs. They were jobs that allowed people to raise kids and send those kids to college. They were jobs that allowed people to spend time with their families. People knew each other by name. People hung out on their front porches and they talked. There was a very strong sort of social cohesion. And what I heard from many people was that once the jobs left, well, then the economic underpinning of the neighborhood left and the middle class families left as well. They went to places like Oak Park and Evanston and Skokie. And so then the social cohesion started to fall apart. Just quickly, walk us through the losses that that started in the late 60s and stretched into the 1970s. You know, the factories closed for a variety of reasons. When we look at the candy industries that used to be there, a lot of that was tied to sugar tariffs that the United States had. And those companies left to manufacture candy in Mexico. Some of the other companies just moved to other parts of the United States um, for cheaper labor, places in the South, for example. Some of the industries just went away. Jukeboxes weren't really relevant anymore. And so for whatever the reason, these factories closed. Many of them actually moved to the suburbs. And what was left was sort of no plan for how to bring jobs back, how to help people transition into other kinds of jobs. And that's what we're still dealing with today. Let's turn now to WBEZ's Natalie Moore and Maria Inez Zamudio with another piece of the story, how the city of Chicago back in the 1980s created areas called planned manufacturing districts, PMDs, to bolster manufacturing at the time when it was losing ground. Uh, Natalie, Maria, good to see you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So here we are in the 1980s, and we can see that you know job losses was one in three people were employed in manufacturing in 1960. That dropped to one in ten jobs by 2017. Um, but these planned manufacturing districts, which still exist today, they were supposed to help. Uh, the industry. Just explain a little bit more about how it was supposed to work, Natalie. Really what a PMD, plan manufacturing district is, is a, de- is a zoning designation. It's not an incentive. It's not something like a tax increment financing district. What it does is that it protects the land. So it keeps the value at what it what it is low and keeps it in a, um, a manufacturing designation so you don't have real estate developers coming in who could then make money or inflate prices. And and the history of this goes back to 1988 in Lincoln Park. And so there was expansion or speculation going westward. And the idea was, let's protect this land from the encroaching real estate developers. And that actually doesn't exist anymore. That's where Lincoln Yards is scheduled to be. And the reason why that designation isn't there anymore is because the steel company left and went to another part of town. So, And that's how the, the new development 
came about. And are there other areas in the city where we see PMDs, Maria? Yeah, PMDs are all over the city. We have 15 of them, and they're also part of what the city is planning for the industrial corridor. So we have industrial corridors where the city plans out what's going to happen in that area, and a lot of the PMDs are inside those industrial corridors. Now, you both had a chance to visit some of these PMDs to see what they're like today. Natalie, you talked about Lincoln Yards, but you also visited the Kinsey PMD on the near near west side. Tell us about what you found there. And that's another area that has staved off development that's not industry because it's so close to the Fulton Market District. Mm -hmm. And so the PMD is seen as very successful there. There's a 93% occupancy rate with businesses. Uh, The reason why that PMD is successful is location, but it's also there's a, a nonprofit called the Industrial Council of Near West Chicago, and they do business incubation. They help attract businesses there. They're like a mini chamber of commerce. So if you drive around the Kinsey PMD, you're going to see Goose Island Brewery. You're going to see a bunch of other breweries. You're going to see some coffee makers, some food. And what we found there is that that area really represents the new urban face of manufacturing. This isn't steel. This isn't putting widgets together. It's not automotive. Um, in some ways, it's maybe a little bit more creative because it's, you know, food and and drink. There's there's coffee that's there. One of the people who uh, is in our stories is a, is a coffee roaster. Mm-hmm. And what makes that PMD successful is you have the the land protection, but you also have, again, this organization that is saying, here are businesses that should go here. Well, Maria, you found a, a different story at the PMD and Little Village. What did you find there? We actually spent uh, quite a bit of time in the Western Ogden uh, PMD, and that is basically sits in three neighborhoods, Little Village, North Lawndale, and Pilsen. And It was the opposite story of the Kinsey PMD. There was very little uh, manufacturing. There was a lot of vacant buildings that used to have manufacturing. And some of the folks that we spoke with there didn't even know about the PMD uh, zoning designation. But there is a lot of fear about gentrification and uh, developers coming into this area and redeveloping that area for residential use. So would these be considered successful at the PMD program as a whole in Chicago? Or is it really just a mixed bag? I think it's a mixed bag. Um, I think you could argue that it's great that you have these designations to protect the land, particularly in areas that are feeling the pressures of real estate. Uh, But there are some BMDs that don't have a lot of activity, like around 119th Street. So you don't have gentrification pressures there. You don't have the expenses of rising housing costs there. PMDs by Midway are doing okay because of uh, warehousing and, and transportation. So they're all over the city, and each one has a different story. That's WBEZ's Natalie Moore and Maria Inez Zamudio. Thanks to you. Let's turn now to one last reporter who worked on WBEZ's manufacturing stories uh, in the Chicago series, Esther Yoon-Ji Kang. Welcome, Esther. Thanks for having me. So we've heard about the history of manufacturing in the city and the job losses. But one thing we should point out here is that there are actually a lot of unfilled jobs in the industry. Talk about the potential there. 
that was the question that we were trying to answer. It seems so simple that you have all these job openings, especially out in the suburbs, and then you have these south and west side communities that are looking for jobs. And so it just was like, what's going on here? Why can't we connect these two pieces together? And that's kind of what we were um, trying to answer. And one of the things that you know we found was that there are just so many different barriers, and that's you know that's what the story is is about. Talk us through these barriers one by one, starting with transportation. The transportation problem is a big issue. So there are about sixty two thousand jobs, uh, manufacturing jobs in Chicago, but there are five times that many, three hundred sixty seven thousand in um, in the six county region. And so if you're looking at that, I mean, just getting around is a problem. If a 15-minute commute for me stresses me out. I mean, think about what a worker who has to take two buses and a train or, you know, what have you, especially when they're doing shift work, uh, which manufacturing entails. What about the skills gap? Well, there are different types of skills that a lot of these workers are lacking, you know, the first of which is basic skills. Uh, these manufacturing jobs don't require a college degree necessarily, but they do require solid math and reading skills. And then there's soft skills, which, um, you know, a lot of these workers have five, ten-year holes in their work history, and so their sort of soft skills have eroded over time. And so that's something that a lot of trainers work on with these uh, residents. And the final piece is technical skills. I mean, manufacturing is incredibly advanced these days. It's no longer just putting two pieces of something together. It's operating computers, um, looking at blueprints. And so those are tough skills to, to acquire. You know, we started off talking to Odette about the way these jobs build community, the way people looked at these jobs as being a way to sustain their families and their kids to college. Do people think about manufacturing jobs differently today? Well, I think they don't even remember that piece of it, that manufacturing used to sustain communities. I think they mostly think about it as manufacturing jobs are dirty or dingy. They think about a dark factory and doing repetitive work. So that perception issue is a big problem in the industry. That's Esther Yoon G. Kang from WBEZ's Race, Class, and Communities Desk. We also spoke with Natalie Moore, Maria Inez Zamudio, and Odette Youssef. You can find the series at WBEZ.org. Thanks, everyone, for coming in. Thanks, Thanks, Jen. Thanks for having us. This is Reset. I'm Jen White. And it's time for What's That Building? When we explore notable or curious architecture in and around Chicago. Today, we take you inside the history and architecture of the John B. Murphy Auditorium at 50 East Erie. The auditorium is 93 years old and it has a history steeped in medicine. Joining us now with more is Reset Architecture contributor Dennis Rodkin with Crane Chicago Business. Welcome back, Dennis. Hi, Jen. So the building has a pretty distinctive exterior. So, so let's start there. Describe it for us. Well, you know, when you stand on the street and look up at this, it's this imposing structure with a huge carved pediment like a Greek temple at the top, pillars, big bronze doors. You can't tell from the sidewalk what they're carved with, but they're carved with, if you get up close, you see they're scenes from the history of medicine. And then the staircase sort of comes down on two sides from this raised entrance, and there are these broad walls that curve around it that sort of create this welcoming entrance. It looks like a chapel. It's modeled after a chapel in Paris, but it's actually a teaching auditorium. So the building has been owned by the American College of Medicine for its entire history, and it's named for a noted Chicago physician, Dr. John B. Murphy. Tell us about him. So he's from this era when surgery is this 
exploding new science, not new, there are new explosions in this science, all sorts of new things happening, and he's behind several of them. Uh, he was a founder of the American College of Surgeons, the owner of this building, which is why they own the memorial, though it was built by other people. It was donated to them. He grows up in Wisconsin, comes to Chicago in the 1870s to go to Rush Medical College, and becomes this world-renowned surgeon. He pioneered a lot of um, appendectomy. Um, he invented something called the Murphy button, which is a metal piece that surgeons would put in when they removed a piece of tissue from inside your body. They would use this button to connect the two pieces, especially of intestine, until the tissues grew in around it. He invented something also called the Murphy Drip, which was a way to administer medication rectally during surgery. His name is on all sorts of things. He's traveling around the country lecturing, you know, like a celebrity surgeon. Well, he was also present at a lot of historical events. Like He, yeah. he sort of pops up all over the place. Uh, tell us about a couple of those incidents. In 1887, when the Haymarket riot happens over on the near west side in November, he is called in to take care, to operate on and, and heal the wounds of about a dozen police officers who are injured. It appears he was present at the hangings of the anarchists who were convicted in the wake of this riot. I'm not 100% sure there was a Dr. John Murphy. I'm not sure that it's the same Dr. John Murphy. Seems likely because he's on the side of all the police officers who were injured. Then later, in 1912, um, Theodore Roosevelt, former president at the time, is on his way to do a, a speech in Milwaukee, and he's shot it's sitting in his car. He's shot in the chest. He goes ahead and does his 90-minute speech, but then it's put on a train to come down to Chicago to be treated by Dr. John Murphy. Then the Lusitania is, sinks. And Murphy goes to New York to claim some of the bodies who are his relatives. Wow. And then in uh, 1916, there's this banquet at the University Club on Michigan Avenue. Mundelein is being elevated to archbishop. He'll go on later to become cardinal. And an anarchist chef poisons the soup, hoping to kill the 200 guests at the banquet. Only two die. It's believed that the reason that only two died is that there were 200 people invited and extra 90 showed up at the last minute, so they had to thin the soup so it was too weak to poison these 200 people, who included governors, captains of industry, Samuel Insull, former mayor, and Dr. John Murphy. So that's uh, February 1916. Six months later, age 58, he dies on Mackinac Island, and it's believed that he's the third casualty of the anarchist soup poisoning incident. Wow. But it turns out when they open up his body that he had heart disease. Mm. Well, I want you to take us inside the auditorium because it's not used very, very often, but you said it was a surgical auditorium so people can yeah. come in and watch surgeries happen. What does it look like in the interior? Well, it was more a teaching place. There wasn't, there wasn't surgery happening there so much as lectures about ah. how these things are going to happen. And the outside is almost an exact copy of the, I'm not going to say it in French because I'll make it sound terrible, but <laughs> Our Lady of Consolation, a chapel in Paris. And it's modeled on that on the outside. And on the inside, very similar. So it's a three-story auditorium with a dome at the top. And it's a 650-seat auditorium. So you've got this ornate dome and plaster ornament coming down, gold and red, sort of running down the sides of the ceiling. It's a very formal place. 
And up above the stage, there's a piece of stained glass that's nearly two stories high, rendered by a woman, which I think is it's 1926, so that's unusual. And then there's this row of chairs along the stage that look like something you see in a medieval church. So what you can imagine is the officers of the American College of Surgeons are probably sitting on this stage while a lecture is being given, while information is being disseminated about new advances in medicine. We think of ourselves, we the surgeons who are right here on the stage, think of ourselves as this guild of surgeons who are proclaiming to the group what the new advances are. Um, So it was used that way as sort of a teaching, a very grand teaching theater, though also, or lecture theater, though also used for official events of the American College of Surgeons, installation of officers, that sort of thing. It's a very grand auditorium. So it sounds like a lot of that original interior design is still intact. Yeah, I think everything you see when you walk around in there is intact. There, There was a renovation in 2003 that we'll talk about, but for the most part, the stained glass, those beautiful row of thrones or chairs on the stage, um, and all this ornamental plaster sort of rolling down the sides from the dome, all from 1926. So the building was designed by Marshall and Fox Architects. What can you tell us about their firm and and where we might see other pieces of their work in Chicago? They're pretty well known. Um, They did the Blackstone Hotel and the theater out back, which which was the Blackstone Theater, now part of DePaul University. They did the South Shore Country Club, which is now the South Shore Cultural Center. They did the Drake Hotel. These very grand buildings from that period, from the 1920s, where you think of where Chicago really is trying to become Paris. Do they have a specific aesthetic or or approach to design? They weren't modernists, that's for sure. Layers and layers of detail, that sort of Parisian grandeur, the Beaux-Arts sort of thing, so that because Chicago really has this view of itself as this grand city at the time. So it's such a distinct uh, building. It's unique. How has it been used in more recent years? It's been used for weddings, and uh, on Sundays a church uses it. There are some events from the College of Surgeons, but it's largely empty, largely unused, I should say. Are there any long-term plans for the building? Selling it. Ah. It's for sale for the first time. So it was built in 1926, uh, donated by the people who built it, by the, the philanthropists who built it, to the American College of Surgeons. And this month, uh, the American College of Surgeons put it up for sale, uh, first time in its history. And uh, they're, like a lot of these sorts of sales, they haven't said what their asking price is. There's no real – because the, you have to come in as a buyer and say, here's what we're going to do. And you're limited with what you can do in two different ways. First of all, that facade, which is really splendid, is protected as a landmark, so you can't change that. But you also – this is a six-story building in a neighborhood where – well, across the street, there's a 56-story high-rise. So if I wanted to come in and build, I can't go up any higher because uh, when they sold the property across the street where that high-rise is now – they sold, the American College of Surgeons sold the air rights. They, so they're selling the south side of the street. They sold the air rights on the north side of the street as well, which makes it possible to build the 56-story condo. So now, if you're going to do anything, you have to keep the facade. You can't go up any, it, behind the facade. You can't go up any higher than just a little bit higher than what it was. It, they sold everything but a chimney or everything to a chimney, and that chimney is no longer there. So you can go just a few feet above the existing roof line. So a buyer probably has to keep the building as is. That's certainly not guaranteed. 
but probably keep what's there. And that's the question. Who can put this ornate auditorium to a new use? Well, if somebody figures out what they can do with that building, I'm sure you'll tell us all about it. That's Dennis Rodkin with Crane Chicago Business. He's Reset's architecture contributor. Dennis, thanks. Thank you, Jen. In other news today, the Washington-based Police Executive Research Forum has turned in a long list of recommendations to CPD to help bring up the department's low rate of solving murders. Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia is pushing what he's calling the New Deal for New Americans Act. It would provide resources to immigrants and refugees to the U.S. And the Illinois State Board of Education released its annual report card yesterday. Statewide average scores have barely changed. Graduation rates held steady at about 86 and the report card shows large achievement gaps remain, even within districts. Speaking of education, we're just getting word as we record this podcast that the Chicago teacher strike has ended. Keep it tuned to WBEZ and Reset for the latest. But that's it for today's Reset. Come back tomorrow for our Friday News Roundup. We'll have all the details about how the city and the union were able to end the teacher strike and a whole lot more. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.